hard to understand as a beginning student. And then you get inducted more and more into the, into the secrets of, of etching and all those things. And you get to, get to be the wizard, you know, with all of the apprentices as, as you're teaching it. Print friends, and welcome to the 76th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters can join up at tiers starting at just a dollar a month, and they all help to bring you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers and totes, so if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes. It's also completely, totally, absolutely fine if you don't want to know more about that because the world is super weird right now and if you just want to listen to a show about printmaking and enjoy what you hear we want you to do just that too hey hey print friends we have merch we're talking printmaking jokes we're talking the pine copper lime logo and now by popular demand shun the non-believers designs check it out now there's a link in the show notes one quick little note more, we're archiving PCL's past episodes on YouTube for your easy listening, closed captioned viewing, and sharing it with people who are confused and suspicious about podcasts and SoundClouds and Spotify's and anything they don't really understand. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you've been following along on Instagram, and we highly recommend that you do, you have no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with many of our close friends here at Pine Copper Lime, like Sean Star Wars and Anna Hasseltine, plus a few artists we admire like Jay Ryan of The Bird Machine, they've created a brand new line of custom inks to push your creative practice even further. So head on over to Speedball's Print Posse Shop at speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, just updated his tool roll, actually, with the Futatsu Warohangito 3mm carving knife. Most of us know how to go at a block with a chisel, but if you've ever seen a yukioi block with your very own eyes, you know those lines come with a variety of tools, maybe most importantly, a knife. And, lucky for our editor, McLean has resources to show exactly how to hold your new tools to keep your hands and joints safe and comfortable and keep you carving for years to come. So head on over to imaclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and learn something new today. Print friends, I have some great news for you. We are happy to announce that this year, the West Coast Print Fair will be hosting an online exhibition of contemporary and historical print work from workshops and galleries such as Crow's Shadow Institute for the Arts, the Maloney Printing Company, my alma mater of Davidson Galleries, and many more. 
This means you do not need to travel to see a wealth of incredible prints for sale. You can do it from the comfort of your home or studio, including a selection of amazing works for under $500. The event is up now through the 8th of February, so be sure to check out that link in the show notes or simply go to westcoastprintfair.com. There you will find the entire roster of printers, find new work to inspire you, and support the art of printmaking by bringing home your new favorite print. My guest this week is Emmy Linkscheid. Emmy is an accomplished lithographer known for her playful and political prints. In this episode, we talk about growing up and coming to printmaking, getting a solid foothold through the workshop and conference circuit like Frogman's, High Point, SGCI, or MAPC. And not to mention the magical history of lithostones. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to feel some chemistry with Emmy Langshide. Hi, Emmy. How's it going? It's going well. How are you, Miranda? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Um, I know that you're a busy person um, with your instructing in your school, but it sounds like you actually maybe just came to a break. Yes, we just um, we just triumphantly arrived at fall break without having to interrupt classes um, due to the pandemic, which has been kind of kind of amazing and not at all a foregone conclusion. So yeah, fall break and then the rest of our instruction will be online for the remainder of the semester. Okay. So a um, much needed break for everybody, students included, I think. I'm sure. Well, definitely congrats on that. So I actually know your work as you were probably one of the first contemporary printmakers whose work I really came to know because I took over the position of director at Davidson Galleries in Seattle. And at the time, I was coming sort of fresh from my master's degree in printmaking. But you don't really learn a whole lot of about contemporary printmakers, sorry, and it was a master's of art history, so I wasn't I wasn't making the prints, I was studying the prints, um, and really wasn't introduced to hardly any of the the canon of contemporary printmakers during that time, and so it feels really good seven years later or more uh, to be sitting down with you on the podcast and and having a chat. Yeah, agreed. I, I remember meeting you actually at SGC kind of yeah. way back when, the, the great meeting of printmakers that has, has been so <laughs> instrumental to sucking me into that world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then so for people who are listening who maybe don't know who you are, would you mind letting people know the who you are, where you are, and just describing what it is that you do kind of questions? Sure. Yeah. My name is Emmy Lingscheid, and I am currently an associate professor at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. That's in the middle, central Illinois, about two hours south of Chicago. And I've been here, I'm in my seventh year, I believe. But yeah, I'm an instructor and a printmaker who um, my work, I guess, primarily focuses on kind of the intersection of, of nature and human cultures and how human structures and activities interconnect and shape the natural world in both intentional and unintentional ways, kind of how organisms shape each other through time, kind of through deep time. And so uh, a lot of traditional printmaking and then kind of more recently I've been getting into comics and zines in more narrative forms that in include a little bit of digital drawing that are is still 
um, very much it, through the, the practice and lens of a printmaker. Like mm-hmm. all the things that I make are, are meant to become real artifacts in the world because that's an important uh, important part of making to me. It's like manifesting yeah. a thing physically. Yeah, for sure. I think that printmakers very much have the makingness in their blood because we we, we like having that that object so much that we usually make multiples yeah (laughs) so you're you're in illinois now but where did you grow up and um what role did art play in that part of your life i grew up in western south dakota in a town called spearfish and um a portion of my family is still there but you know it's a it's a conservative state was and still is um but i was fortunate to have access to a pretty good art education system k through 12 and that i think was kind of secondary to my even earlier experience of reading with my parents they were really invested in reading you know children's stories to us that were really richly illustrated really fascinating and inventive and i think that was actually probably my first exposure to art and also to narrative and like storytelling, which continues to be something I do in my work, whether consciously or unconsciously, kind of more consciously recently. But the storytelling aspect of that is is important. Another thing that has influenced the type of art I make, I think, is my we were outdoors a lot. We were really like hiking with my parents or camping. Um, I think I spent a lot of time like laying on my stomach in the yard as a young child, just like studying a square inch of grass. And my parents also subscribed us to um, my big backyard and Ranger Rick magazine, oh, which I had these. Those. <laughs> oh, what a great artifact of the eighties! But they you know, it introduces kids to this beautiful wildlife photography, these like really intimate kind of up close, kind of unexpected moments with animals and how strange the diversity of organisms is on this planet, things that you wouldn't, wouldn't imagine existed being brought into your living room that you can kind of sit and page through. And so I, I kind of thought for a while, you know, as you're cycling through the the career options that become like manifest to you as existing in the world to choose from. I thought I wanted to be a wildlife photographer for a while Mm -hmm. there or a scientist of various branches of science, but I was always an art kid as well. And I think part of that is I, I really enjoyed just the invention of drawing that you can, you know, put paper, um, pencil to paper and um, just create things that you, you didn't even really know you were aiming for, you know, that there's this like sense of discovery um, and things that just emerge from from the paper. Um, and that's something I, I think that I still like in printmaking. Like that's part of the the physical making. There are things that evolve unexpectedly from just the process of, of printing and layering and the things that you do in the studio beyond just like the premeditated image, you know, at that point. But mm-hmm. getting getting back to that question, I think that I I struggled a little bit in high school to figure out if like at the at the juncture when you go to um, college and choose a major I think there was some pressure where I felt like some of the adults in my life felt that maybe art was throwing away some some other paths that would be more productive mm-hmm. and that's something I still I I still think about how how does my art connect with the world in a way that um, has an effect you know that I'm not just sitting alone in the studio making sort of like narcissistic <laughs> images you know, like 
I, I still want to have that impact and, and have an engagement when there are so many things um, going on in the world. And so ultimately, yeah, I did major in art. I went to St. Cloud State University in Minnesota. I sort of jumped ship to a blue state there and mm-hmm. didn't go back. I, um, I majored in painting as an undergrad because that was all I knew. I wasn't aware of printmaking at all. And Jenny Schmidt was teaching there at the time. Yeah, and she, she's responsible for the, the original <laughs> switch. Up. So I took a couple of printmaking classes and I, I really loved it. And when I graduated, I had all these connections to Minneapolis and St. Paul because I had a lot of great instructors there who were practicing artists, are practicing artists still. And they sort of showed us a way, um, me and my kind of cohort of um, friends and fellow art students, to start engaging with the artistic community in Minneapolis and St. Paul and get involved in exhibitions and applications for some of the opportunities that are funded. Because Minnesota is a good place to be an artist. They have a a fair amount of grants and fellowships that are competitive that you can, can bid for. And I ended up kind of working. I was out of school for a few years, but during that time, I I made works on a little press that was actually loaned to me and my two friends that were my housemates, loaned from Jenny Schmidt. And so we had a little press and I was making tiny mesotints and and little line of cuts that I ended up applying to the High Point Center for Printmaking for one of their Jerome Emerging Printmaker fellowships. And that was really formative. I think up until that point, I hadn't really ever had the opportunity to take myself seriously as an artist. You know, when you're mm-hmm. a student, you're mostly responding to prompts and assignments, and you can sort of make those your own. But then to be kind of spat out on the other end of that, where you're you're fully responsible for owning your work from start to finish, like um, what medium it's in and what the themes and concepts of it are. And so I really had to start figuring that out at this fellowship, which was nine months of access to the studios at the high point for for making a body of work Mm. and also visiting critics that would would talk to you about your work. And so that was that was great for me. And I I made I think during the course of that nine months, I made six big lithographs, um, which was kind of a conscious choice to use the facilities to do something that I couldn't do elsewhere, like litho was not something you can do in your kitchen. And so I wanted to, to get to know that that medium better. And at the point that I started doing the residency at the High Point Center for Printmaking, my my sister, another formative in, influence in my life, uh, my sister Carrie Lingscheid is also a, a very talented printmaker. And she said to me, well, you're, it seems like you're a printmaker now. Um, you've been fully <laughs> converted from and now you should check out Frogman's workshops, in which at the time were in South Dakota. And so I, I got connected with assisting for three summers with Frogman's printmaking workshops, which was really in, inducted me into the printmaking cohort, which I had not really fully been aware of. This whole um, sort of like national clubhouse, national rowdy clubhouse of you know, generous mentors, generous and really accessible people that teach all across the United States who came as instructors to Frogmen, who I got to work with as an assistant and, and meet. And so I was out of school for a, a good, probably four or five years, but it didn't feel like it. I think during that time, I was like gathering a lot of information about where I might want to go to grad school and just how the world worked and sort of how art and academia intersect with each other a little bit. So that was that was really valuable. And it also plugged me into the conference circuit. That's probably 
about the time we may have first crossed mm-hmm. paths too, as mm-hmm. I started attending FGC and MAPC and just seeing what was out there, which I had not been aware of at all until that point. And that continues to be one of the things I really love about printmaking is this, this the high degree of like interconnectedness and cross pollination that happens in all of these spaces in a in a non-COVID time. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll all be excited to return to that, but it's nice that it's happening in other in other sort of remote and digital ways, I guess, right now. It's definitely making us all be a bit more creative about the ways that we connect for sure, because we do really have that incredible community that that gathers and at different residencies at places like Frogman's, at places like Print Austin, of course, SGCI, which we talked about before. And getting to come together and share work and trade work, it really is, I think, one of the things that keeps people kind of lifers when it comes to printmaking. I I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed where they say, well, I I came for the art and I stayed for the community. There is a kind of, I I do think there is like a generosity to that culture that is maybe connected to portfolio exchanges and, and the multiple and also the the shared workshop environment in which you're you're often working if you're sharing presses and spaces like that. But it kind of it almost adds up to something more where it's a, it's a yeah, it's kind of an extended family sort of built around this discipline. That's nice. And so, well, I know you do many different media. I, I think of you sort of as a lithographer when I think of Emmy. That may be because the work that I showed of yours was primarily lithography. So I've had the most sort of intimate interaction with that. But do you consider yourself, if you if you had to choose a title, are you Emmy Lingscheit lithographer? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I think I've been, I mean, I would, I would still identify as Emmy Lingscheit printmaker mm-hmm. primarily, but I've been more expanding into working sculpturally at times, but I think always with a little bit of the, the mental structures of a printmaker. Mm-hmm. I think I, I do have perhaps my most enduring love is, is for lithography because of the sort of like alchemical ancient magic of it that yeah. is kind of hard to understand as a beginning student. And then you get inducted more and more into the, into the secrets of <laughs> etching and all those things and you get to, get to be the wizard you know, with all of the apprentices as, as you're teaching it, which is kind of a weird, I think there's a little bit of a like endless challenge of mastery that you've, you've never fully mastered it. There's always more mm. to learn with though. Yeah, for sure. I know when I would try and explain to people what it is that I do. And, you know, I always start with like woodcut because it seems like the most basic and people maybe did potato stamps or something as kids. Uh-huh. And then it, they'd be like, okay. And then you talk through that, you talk them through etching, you talk them through screen print, and then then they'll be like, and can you explain lithography to me? And I'm like, just focus on understanding that first, you know. You're like, exactly. Like, do you have three times as much the amount of time that I just spent talking about those three mediums with you? Yep, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I it it plays well with other media too. That's the thing that I like. I often combine it with um with screen print to just get more more kind of immediate color and more kind of modularity to be able to mixed editions and try out different things. But I, I do, I, I love the kind of unmediated mark of litho that it's capable of so many things and you can just draw directly and intuitively on the stone without having to translate marks for, for photo processes or for printing in a, in a relief style, anything like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, there is something 
there's some magic to that that I also just love I just love a, a slab of limestone too. Who doesn't? I know. I know. <laughs> they're really they're really just beautiful objects. And yeah. what one of my favorite observations I've ever heard about them, I think it was when I was interviewing Elizabeth Jean Yance and she was talking about how the stones have these personalities in this life because they're made of living things. And I just loved that idea that lithographers are just doing this dance with all of these billions or I guess probably millions of ancient little lives to, to, yeah, to create something new, to create works of art on it. It's just, it, it just doesn't really get more poetic and strange than that, which, you know, are just totally. the two best combinations, I think, for sure. Totally. Yeah. It's like a slab of, of geologic time from the from the beginning, from when it's quarried. But also, as it's been worked, a lot of the stones that I've touched in various stu- studios over time have been, you know, in use since the, you know, early 1900s. So they might have like old map images or um, old advertising or old political posters. And it has all this, this kind of like history embedded in that object that I think is amazing. And all and actually all of those artifacts out in the world are something that um, those those posters and kind of hand drawn maps are things that I, I want my lithos to kind of reference a little bit in in their hand drawnness too. So there's yeah, there's all these historical legacies around litho that are kind of magical. And so, did you find that traditional you know hand drawn stone lithography during your residency at High Point? Or did were you familiar with it before that? I I did it in undergrad actually. Yeah, it was completely out of left field. I was like, okay, we're gonna draw on this rock. <laughs> acids on this rock. We're going to roll ink in the rock. I still remember all of the anomalous disasters that happened in my class uh, from other people rolling their stone up fully black or, you know, mm-hmm. things burning out. And that just had a, there's a very like Hogwarts miscast spell kind of feeling. <laughs> you know, a little bit. And I remember Jenny calmly, you know, rolling up her sleeves and, and saving, saving images from, you know, things that had seemed totally lost causes. And yeah, and it's so I think one of the things about lithography too is you know so my husband is a lithographer and does many media but is particularly interested in lithography. And because of that, you know, I we tend to interact with lithographers out in the world when we travel. And you know, you'll just find people who have stories of how different people do it and if it's Mexico City or Paris or Bangkok people will be doing completely different things on the stones and still getting the same beautiful results so there's just such a strange I think that's like maybe kind of what adds to the the Hogwartsy kind of feel about it is that it's just so many different paths to get a different result and the the way the breeze is blowing that one day and the way the humidity is in the air will affect things and people will learn their own techniques that work that other people just can't get to work no matter what they do uh it's yeah there's not much in our modern world that gets to keep that bit of mystery about it i think yeah, it's true. And they're, they're, you're right. They're so they're like regionally specific according to like scarcities of materials at times and also 
just cultural customs within this each school like even throughout the united states people learn different ways and they're not exchangeable it is one of the things that i've kind of mm-hmm. noticed people would be like well here's a better way to do that and I, I can't slot out that one specific part because it's so interconnected with all the other steps that I've learned that kind of relate to each other too. So everybody's, I just feel like there's a very personal, personal uh, sort of recipe for, for each way that people do things that you can kind of absorb over time, but not, not quickly. <laughs> and so to move a little bit from, you know, sort of the media or the like the technical process of what you make and kind of maybe get a chance to chat a little bit about the subject matter. At the beginning, you used the phrase nature and human cultures as the way you describe what your art is about, which is just a really fascinating turn of phrase for me because I'm someone who's, you know, a Ranger Rick, 80s baby myself and grew up just adoring animals and still do. And that's always something that really drew me to your work was these beautiful renderings of these animals that you find throughout what you do. Can you just talk a little bit maybe more about that phrase in particular and kind of the way that you use this visual language to explore nature and humans interacting? I think another word that I am sort of interested in for describing my work is um, post-naturalism, this idea that we are kind of permanently affecting organisms beside beside ourselves in in ways that will kind of reverberate throughout time and and often kind of unintentionally i think there are some kind of ideas in like object oriented philosophies like new materialism and you know speculative realism that i think about in in my work that are thinking about kind of materials in our bodies and materials in the bodies of other creatures and materials that are in the world that we think of as inert being all very kind of related to each other and um, that we see the world through an extremely kind of biased human lens that but that all of these processes and exchanges um, and lives really are happening with or without humans there that we're kind of missing and also kind of obliterating by our obliviousness to them right now at a time when you know there are more people on the planet than ever and there's not very much interest in in changing our economic system which is really focused on sort of consumption and extraction Mm -hmm. from the land and, and the creatures around us and you know constant expansion that seems really untenable and I think we all kind of know it but there's not very much either will or imagination to change that. And I think that my work is trying to kind of parse down and show kind of what's at stake with that and what what things are maybe being overlooked and appreciating how our fates are intertwined, that there's this like connection between humans and the environments around us that is almost, you know, to, to borrow a, a phrase um, from the, the author, Timothy Morton, who's like a writes about new ecological perspectives, that it's like an interconnected mesh, all organisms are actually kind of just like different manifestations of some of the same mm. stuff, and some of the same life forces. And um, it's I think it's easy to forget that because of just the, the dominant culture of uh, and our, our sort of like digital lives that everything I feel like more than more than ever, things have been kind of re- reduced down to like, you know, looking at screens and moving kind of units of our income around. <laughs> in- oh my gosh, that's so <laughs> dark and so true. Oh gosh, yeah. Emmy. <laughs> I, 
Sorry, sorry to bring it down. Yeah. Going outside and staring at that square inch of, of grass in your yard can kind of like reorient your brain a little mm-hmm. bit to like what is actually, you know, the, the main stuff that life and the planet we're on is made out of, which will, you know, presumably endure beyond the, the culture that we're kind of the accelerating culture that we're in right now that is like accelerating to what end, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, I'd like to believe that we're all going to be around in two or 300 years. But, you know, sometimes I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to wonder, actually, out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that yeah, you, you bring up that square inch of grass again as as a foil to the the accelerating life of moving imaginary units around on a screen because when you were describing that childhood in western south dakota and doing that it immediately brought me back to doing that as a kid as well and just being fascinated by it like the the different kinds of blades of grass there's the the thick rough ones and the little baby new ones that are light green and the different kinds of dirt and when you're staring at that square inch of grass that a worm comes through and it might be gross and a a little potato bug comes through and it might be cute and you I just would spend I don't even know how much time doing it, but many, many hours, I'm sure, in total. And I wondered, are kids doing that anymore when they have screens now and they can play games on mom and dad's phone and and that kind of thing? Is there just a fascination with just that little world beneath our feet that still happens? I, I don't. I don't know either way, but I think yeah. it would be a shame if they're missing out on that, that innate curiosity with the world that can be fostered in those moments. Yeah, I hope. I mean, it, it is available to most people in, in some in some space where, you know, we're, we're all living in different circumstances, more more, you know, urban or rural environments. But there are those things to, to be found. And that is increasingly even sort of like compromised you know, even if all you can find is like a little patch of grass coming up through a crack in the asphalt, like that's still nature. That's kind of what we've got to work with at this point. And you can't you can't throw everything out just because it's no longer, you know, a, a pristine forest off in the distance that you kind of you have to in, encounter it where you can and, and kind of tune in at, at whatever scale you can. Mm-hmm. I was going to also say, but my interest in organisms and the focus on on our kind of like human centeredness is that it creates this this view where everything around us is is basically like a, a raw material or an ingredient for for something that we want to do um, something some purpose that that we want to forward at the cost of of everything else and I see that kind of in the place that I live here having moved from outside into Illinois. Um, we have a very leafy, beautiful town that I live in. But if you go beyond that, beyond all the kind of um, tree covered streets here, we're surrounded by corn and soybean fields for just like miles, tens and hundreds of miles around because it's it's just primo territory for that mm-hmm. kind of monocultural crop and like in large scale industrial farming. And that is at the cost of, of anything that doesn't serve that overarching efficiency is eliminated. And there's a lot of money and time spent on like 
maximizing the crop and eliminating the pesky things that get in the way of that, you know, be they like pocket gophers or weeds, you know, there's all of this technology, including that our, our university partners with focusing on um, through these these big ag tech companies. And that that is sort of my, my interest in kind of ecological justice, increasingly with my work kind of more recently in a direction that I'm going in, is that ecological justice and, and social justice are, are pretty intertwined. And you're starting to see that with like climate refugee situations mm. that will often where industrial waste is most prolifically dumped. Those are the the most impoverished and powerless communities, often like communities of color, people that are, you know, struggle to have the resources and access to kind of advocate for themselves. And that our ideas about like the otherness of creatures besides ourselves and the the few plants or animals that we that are useful to us, it has some parallels in in like the othering of of people that we we feel maybe like less valuable or or more expendable or disposable and that those things are kind of converging in the in the 21st century in ways that have to be paid attention to and so I'm I'm kind of like in the past been a little more focused on just you know thinking about animals and plants and and now thinking more about how those translate to inequalities just you know between humans and like how those intersect with these these dominant ideologies that we're stuck in that we don't even really know or see um mm-hmm. see around us you know like you know straightness and and white privilege or white white supremacy and these these things that are are invisible if you have never questioned or examined them so you know like speculative fiction and and queer theory and science fiction these are these are things that are kind of like interesting to to my work and storytelling i think too I always am sort of fascinated by this theme, how basic goodness tends to actually affect different spheres that we've drawn these distinctions around, you know, like environmental justice and social justice. And we think of them as different things, but actually just basic human dignity and decency in one realm will have a positive effect on many others. And it just, it kind of leads me to have a a faith, I suppose, that perhaps the world is always seeking this equality and this justice. And because that is when things are in harmony and when, when even things like power or wealth distribution get so far out of whack, it sets off all systems because order and balance is the natural state for things to go smoothly in nature as well as economic, social, racial justice, all of that. Yeah, I think uh, the bottom line is just be ethical. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Easier said than done, but you know, there there are some sort of uh, Christian tenets that I think I was I was raised with that whether or not one still practices those, a religion, you know, the things that you are are raised with become like mental structures in your brain Mm -hmm. that are that are an inescapable architecture of the way you see the world. And I think that there are some sort of Judeo Christian kind of call to maintain those, you know, the natural world around you and to look out for people that are, are, you know, weaker or need help or like to do unto others. And I think this political moment has been extremely depressing to, to watch, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the folks, um, so, some segment of the population that is, 
ostensibly, you know, espouses those beliefs, but is sort of willing to stand by. Well, there's, yeah, the the disturbing numbers about more white women voting for Trump this year than in 2016 is just, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, we're, we're getting into we're getting into deep territory now, but I think yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of that has to do with hetero patriarchy, you know that that over overrides kind of it. And again, it's an invisible thing, but the mm-hmm. uh, the desire not to cancel out your husband's vote is a profound sort of thing, yeah. and it, it's, I think it kind of points to the way in which um, people feel unconsciously that those structures are are good for them, that they're you know they're protected and, and fine with that status quo, but it is yeah. it is depressing. And that people are somehow unqualified to report their own experience is something that I always mm-hmm. come back to is, you know, people might look around and say, well, I'm fine. Is it really that bad for these people who are saying it's that bad for them? Like, yeah, and, yeah. and it's just like, like, yes, it is. It's their lives. They know. Like, just the fact that you can hear all of these stories of people saying and just being like, yeah, but is it, though? Like, it's just like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, I I feel like that is one of the the powers of art or narrative is bringing those stories that might be invisible um, before people that might have the power to to care Mm. and affect, affect change. You know, I think the people that have the most power to kind of change the system are often the same people that are the most insulated against the consequences of, you know, they're in, they're, they're protected from, from knowing the situations that other people are in, unless you're kind of consciously um, looking to seek that out or educate yourself, such as the, the, you know, the, the big kind of sea change that I, I hope, you know, is permanent that happened over the summer after the murder of George Floyd. And you see it, saw people, you know, reading about like being actively anti-racist mm-hmm. in ways that they may never have engaged with before. And I, yeah, I, th- I think there is some goodwill, you know, out there and that has to be sustained. And it does require people like making an effort to get outside of their, their comfort zones um, to kind of to know about things that um, don't feel like they affect them directly. But I think it's it's like you said, like a healthy society benefits everybody. I don't think anybody likes living in this constant state of what feels like um, like cultural warfare in America that we saw with like the division of how the how votes came down, you know, for, for president. But there's oftentimes I'll get satisfaction or or just sort of happiness and talking with, with someone, you know, who was raised a, as a as a straight man and they'll be saying something, something, something and I'll be like able to be like, Yes. And this is why feminism is also good for men. You know, like being yeah. able to like to come to these moments of being like, it's like it really is when everyone is okay, the world is better. You know, there's, there's, I'm sure yeah. some philosopher that says that, you know, you, you can, you can judge a society on the quality of the most marginalized people in it, the quality of their lives of the most yes. marginalized people. And, and then that is the standard to which we should judge a society, not how many billionaires do you have? Yeah. And I mean, we can do better as a nation. <laughs> United States, yeah. <laughs> some real areas of growth there available to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I, it's interesting how you're saying that, like using that aesthetic, using kind of beauty, using a narrative, and being able to tell stories with it, and maybe perhaps a bit difficult stories, 
it reminds me of something I was always curious about your work is how it is political, it's about activism, it's about social justice, but it's never felt very super heavy-handed to me. You know, not to not to, to throw shade on, on anyone's art practice, but never has that kind of undergraduate-y kind of feel where it's like, I made a, you know, I made a, a woodcut of Trump on the toilet, you know, like that kind of like, yeah. I'm just showing you immediately what I'm angry about, which, you know, those yeah. are cathartic and they might, they, you know, they, they have a play in the world, but there's always that your work always has an extra sort of layer to it or an extra kind of decoding or a bit of a storytelling to say what you're looking to say. Could you yeah. let us send it all kind of into that process? Like, do you do you create an image and then sort of later realize what you're making the image about? Or do you think about what, what you're feeling and what you want to make work about and then sort of start coding it consciously? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think it's kind of a back and forth process. And sometimes the the image will kind of appear to me first. And I, I kind of think about what that's about as it, it kind of settles in and I start drawing it. But often I'm responding to a feeling or an outrage or, you know, mm. sometimes a, a portfolio. I tend to when I'm asked to do exchange portfolios, increasingly like I just agree to the ones that are topics that I, I want to, to work with already. But I I guess to the broader um, point about not hitting people over the head with a thing, I I don't I don't think it's productive to um, like right off the bat poke people in the eye and mm. like, you know, yell. I think it's cathartic. I really and I think that serves a purpose. But I, I don't think you're going to change anybody's mind by like mocking someone or like being intentionally antagonistic right off the bat. And I also I mean, I don't know if you're going to change anybody's mind by being subtle. It seems like the psychology is that people's minds are very hard to change. And so that's something that sometimes I'm like, what are we all even doing? You know, I think people have to actually know somebody who is directly affected by by a policy or uh, an action in the world in order for them to become sympathetic to it in some ways. But but my hope with my work is that I'm by using a bit of a ironic hook whereas someone is is visually kind of seduced to spend more time looking at the work on on the first level then they kind of get um absorbed into the second level which is a a more sort of broadly political kind of message where there's some other action happening kind of beneath the surface some other kind of like association or or story that they wouldn't maybe not be receptive to you know otherwise if that was like the main message kind of writ large and so my goal with my work has always been to, you know, speak to my fellow, you know, artist academics, but also to like your dad watching Fox News somewhere, you know, who's like, this is a beautifully drawn art piece. And then mm. hopefully they spend enough time, you know, with it to kind of absorb it. The more some of the more perhaps unsettling or like um, unsettling to an established ideology um, content that's in it and, and get people to sort of be invited to ponder those things in a more honest way than if they were just immediately sort of reacting of that having the reaction of I, I don't agree with this and mm -hmm. I why would I give that time kind of thing yeah the science of changing people's minds is fascinating and slightly depressing when you realize how difficult yeah. it is you know once people have reached a certain age and I think that age is you know 10 
or something yeah. like that. Backlash effects are real too. Like if you tell mm. somebody they're wrong, they're going to dig in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's, and, and I, what I've heard about it in terms of the extent that people have actually studied it, it, it is, is what you've heard is that, you know, if you, if, if someone holds a prejudice against queer people, pretty much the only known way that that changes is if they meet a queer person, an out queer mm-hmm. person, and mm-hmm. they can say, hey, like, actually, did you know, you know, I'm gay or I'm trans or whatever it is. And then that will actually plant the seed of someone looking someone in the eye and being like, oh, but but I like you. I think it's true. A lot of those like prejudices are a failure of imagination, like Mm. a failure of empathy because you think you don't know anybody (laughs) that it affects. (laughs) Yeah, if you can get over that, help somebody kind of embody what that what that would be um, to be the other. I think can Mm. increase empathy. Mm -hmm. And and sort of you know knowing that it's possible to maybe have a bit of a storm cloud outlook on people in the arts making work that holds these ideologies of about social justice and environmental justice but I also always want to return to this idea of like what else are we to do you know like like maybe it's not maybe your one piece won't be the tipping point for someone to change their view but maybe it will and maybe it will because over the course of their life they've seen a hundred thousand displays of this message in various forms of art whether it's watching Shit's Creek or reading a novel or seeing a lithograph by Emmy Lingscheit all of these ways that art touches people in different steps throughout their life it's gotta have some cumulative effect I have to believe that or maybe it sort of primes someone for when they do meet someone who is telling them in a personal way about whatever it issue is, maybe it all kind of works together to move that needle slowly on mm-hmm. the overarching ideologies in the U.S. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you gotta try. <laughs> you gotta try, right? You gotta try. Yeah, you gotta try. I think also something that stands out about your work is that it can be quite playful as well which I really like. A little bit ironic sometimes, I think. And even though you're dealing with these really heavy issues as we've been talking through, there can be definitely a a sense of play. Is that something you kind of consciously put in your work to, to drop a little spoonful of sugar in there? Or is that just kind of your natural sort of storytelling inclinations that you know that this is what makes an interesting narrative? I, well, I think it's, I, I enjoy you know, making, making work. And I think that some of the, the visual pleasure and like the, the pleasure of making does kind of manifest through there. Um, but it is also that spoonful of sugar. I think it's the, it's the reward for looking for, for mm. the viewer. And I like the idea that there is sort of a, a promise of a reward for, for looking longer that a thing could be decoded, that there's something encoded that could be decoded. Mm. And, and there's some um, playfulness there. One of the, the things that I'm getting more into that I think has been kind of a, a back burner dream for, for decades now since I kind of discovered comics in like early undergrad is working with narrative in a longer form. I think I sometimes try to pack a lot of detail and a lot of sort of like narrative encoding into one static image and 
starting to draw mini comics and like little extended narratives told through pictures and little um, a little text has been really rewarding and something that I think has has a lot of potential for for that kind of kind of storytelling and engagement and absorbing people and it and it functions a little bit more like you mentioned Schitt's Creek I I do think that actually one of the biggest ways that ideas kind of bubble through culture is through the screen like small and large the tv shows that that people watch that are kind of um kind of shape your thinking and in these these alternate worlds and that that comics can do something like that too in in the way it's kind of this sequential kind of absorbing um, story that unfolds over time. So that's kind of where what you're talking about, I think, is is possibly heading for me. It's very time consuming, but I, I just kind of along with my classes since the, the COVID pandemic drove us home last spring. Um, I had to I was actually teaching a lithography class, which became immediately not something that people do, yeah. <laughs> you know after they they left for spring break and then essentially surprise never never were able to come back and so we switched one of the kind of curricular projects which is was to make a a single fold kind of extended comic scene narrative and so I I made something along with them that really kind of took off on its own and became this much more kind of extended project of kind of thinking back to a, a time of intensive an intensive experience of of public togetherness from from pre-pandemic era that I are are things I think about a lot now like treasuring the last concert that I went to or the last time that I you know was in a crowded line at a movie or something like that things that I never would have thought that I'd ever become nostalgic for that now I'm now I'm very moved by <laughs> I'm glad that you brought it back around to thinking about and talking about these zines and these comics, because when you mentioned that, I was curious about it. Because yeah. printmaking and comics, of course, have this really intertwined history. And one of the ways I've actually gotten people sort of in my role as a printmaking communicator to understand color woodblocks or, or color lithographs is I'll say, do you remember when you were reading your comics as a kid and sometimes you could tell that the yellow wasn't put down quite right on a page. And then they get it, you know, then the multiple things tends to click into place. So I would, I would love to see more printmakers diving into that. I think comic art is incredible and can be extremely moving. I feel like some of the most moving literary or narrative experiences I've had have been reading what people, you know, define as sort of like art comics. Yeah, there's a, a really, um, there's a moving and increasing body of graphic novels that, uh, you know, we've been, I'm actually teaching a comics and zines class through our printmaking department this semester, which has been really good for a partly remote um, teaching because people are, you know, drawing at home and we're reading and, and talking about things. But um the potential in comics for things to be entirely authored by one person is something that when you're comparing it to what, you know, movies and TV shows do is similar in the way that it uses kind of like this kind of first person story in some cases and sort of like camera angles and aesthetic devices to to show these, you know, stories and, and other realms. But with a graphic novel from start to finish, it can all be from the from the mind of one person. And so through that, you get 
these kind of representations of of people from more like marginalized communities or or other countries or you know voices that you don't hear in that kind of mainstream media and that's one of the things i think is really cool about um comics and graphic novels especially kind of more um sort of the kind of outsider art kind of versions of that that are increasingly getting published and getting more voice yeah i think that that's hugely significant and just another way in which accessibility to telling one's story is so significant and so important I think not only for sort of general societal change but also for emotional well-being I I one of my favorite podcasts among many favorite podcasts is one called this is actually happening and it's sort of first person people telling stories about what they've experienced and one of them was a it's not even an interview you don't you, I think it's sort of clear that you've heard the person's been asked questions but the all you hear is their narrative straight through just their voice oh, and cool. I heard one of these talks from someone who'd been a journalist in the Congo and how he would go to these villages that had just had been been burned been raided and the first thing that people would ask him when they kind of came out of where they were hiding from and he would arrive and he said, no, like we're, we're here, we're with, we're with journalists, we're with um, helpers, you know, you're safe now, come out. The first thing that people would ask would always be like, do people know what's happening to us here? Yeah. Before they would ask anything about food or medical supplies, it was just, do people know about this? And I, yeah. that really stayed with me as a really powerful anecdote about how being heard and being heard in one's pain it, there's something mm -hmm. that is so fundamentally it's such such a fundamental need for humans to have and so the more that the marginalized people in our world can through twitter or comic books or whatever platform that's possible tell their stories i'm hoping that 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 need is being met and that change will be enacted because of it. That's a powerful story. Yeah, for sure. And and also it's just like, it's good for everybody to have more diversity in mm. our just like storytelling and what's out there. I think that culture has such a like homogenizing effect on like what filters up into our, into our consciousness and like letting the a more direct pipeline of some of those voices through, you know, podcasts and interviews and the, the kind of diversity of those media that are not like, Hollywood are, are really important and a big, you know, a growing kind of pastime for people to, uh, like audiences are more aware of those things to tune into them um, increasingly. Well, before we sign off here, what are you looking forward to in the future? I know that that's a tricky question a bit these days because things seem very uncertain and up in the air. But what's on the horizon, uh, kind of despite some of the, the interesting projects that we've already chatted about, that is going to, you know, make your make your 2021? <laughs> yeah, well, um, looking forward to hopefully a more um, stable and sane political situation in our country. Mm -hmm. um, fingers crossed for that. You know, but I also will be I'll be going on sabbatical next semester, which feels still like a, a magical word of privilege that I am still wrapping my head around. But it means I'll, I'll have the semester off from teaching, which would under normal circumstances, 
entail traveling. You know, I, I was looking forward to some residencies and um, things that have been productive for getting out of my routine and, and totally focusing on art in, in past. But um, with the pandemic, I will be probably closer to home and close to my studio here at the university, which if classes are still primarily online, I'll probably have the place to myself and be um, comfortable and sprawled out and lonely in there. Um, and I'm looking forward to making, getting back to, I recently had done some large scale lino cuts that were meant to be printed in multiples. And then um, I installed a couple times wheat pasted up into different spaces in, in different kind of site specific installations and I'm I have a project on the horizon that that um, kind of utilizes that approach again so I'm all I've got some stuff at home I, I was kind of anticipating that our our state of Illinois may go into a stay-at-home order um, before too long in the next couple of weeks with the holidays coming up and, and COVID numbers spiking so it's a it sounds kind of like sci-fi dystopic to say but I, I'm kind of planning to maybe be stuck at home for a little bit generating some some blocks just doing some carving to to come back in and, and print again when when I'm able to in in the shop which is nice because I really like the physicality of and like the catharsis of carving a nice piece of linoleum I think it's time for that yeah. in my life yeah I could definitely see that like none of like leave leave the alchemy and the sorcery aside there's enough uncertainty yeah. in the world right now like just <laughs> just totally. carve a nice and- piece of linoleum and leave the screens behind. No pixels, no screens. Just, yeah. Just yeah. Listen to some listen to some podcasts like this one. Oh, good. You know, it's <laughs> I, I did have on my list to ask you about your golden record, Lino, which oh, I just yeah. adored, and I actually have an appointment to probably get a golden record tattoo myself. In a couple of days here, so I am I am oh. also a huge fan of the Golden Record, um, but I didn't know since since you brought up the large scale linos and I did have it on my list. Do you want to actually quickly sure. share that particular image because it yeah. was so great? Yeah, that was um, that Golden Record image. I think we called it Sunmore Chuck Berry <laughs> because um, <laughs> Chuck Berry. Um, was one of the one of the sounds recorded on that record. The Golden Record print was actually a collaboration between me and three or four students who were we were preparing a block for the really big prints printmaking steamroller printmaking event mm-hmm. um, that's been held every other year at um, University of Wisconsin Manitowoc, which has been just like a really lovely experience for the students in our in our print club. And so that was kind of the subject matter we were kind of collaboratively decided on um, based on people's kind of interest in narratives of, you know, reaching beyond, you know, human cultures, which was the idea of the mission of the Voyager was to bring um, just like greetings from human civilization to, you know, potential other life out in the universe. And I think it was transmitting for a very long time. And I think part of the impetus of choosing that subject matter for our print was that um, its signal was fading and maybe had completely been lost because it was so far out in space at this point. And mm. so that was a really uh, fun project to work on together because we we kind of drew it collaboratively. A lot of the different parts of that print were made by different people, the, the three, four different students that worked on it. And it just came together beautifully because I think that re- there is something about the, the leaf carving that kind of marries together different styles. And the block was so big that we could all, you know, gather work on different sections without tools. And that was really nice 
um, kind of human communal cultural thing for a project um, for, through NASA that sends out human communal, mm. you know, cultural togetherness to the, to the broader universe. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, it was, it was a really, it was um, a nice project and a nice, a nice time printing it. I've since read, I, I really enjoy reading science fiction and um, kind of like speculative fiction books. And to, to listeners, I would recommend reading The Three-Body Problem, which is a book by Xian Lu, I'm mispronouncing his name almost certainly, but uh, a Chinese author who is also a scientist who believes in, in reality and also strongly presented through this book that we probably shouldn't be broadcasting our location. <laughs> that is, I know, <laughs> I know. I totally have a, I have a romantic slash practical relationship with the Golden Record because of uh-huh. that. <laughs> yeah. That that horse is out of the barn now, so I guess we'll see what see who intercepts it eventually. But um, that that book was very interesting too. But yeah, yeah, yeah I love a I do love a large scale lino cut and the 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 ways in which that it can can bring communities together in making and printing. Beautiful. Well, speaking of long distance communications, where can people find you and? follow your work and see what you're up to and see what you produce on sabbatical and all of that good stuff. Oh yeah. Well, I, my website is my name, um, emmylingshite.com and I'll be updating things there soon. I'm sure <laughs> don't, don't hold your breath, but it'll happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm on Instagram, um, at my handle is mquad with two M's like the letterpress mquad, um, mquad on Instagram and so I'll, I'll be posting progress and um, and projects there as I work beautiful well I will put links in the show notes to both of those and thank you so much for for joining me on your Sunday morning and yes. it's been really nice to catch up and talk about the heavy and the fun and everything in between and I will certainly be in touch when the the podcast comes out and yeah, it's just been great. Thank you for, for spending some time with me tonight, Emmy. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. It's been nice. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week for one more special edition of PCL in collaboration with Print Austin and our good friends over at the Studio Noise podcast. I'll be interviewing Oliver Pillick, one of the artists selected for Print Austin's 5x5 exhibition, juried by Delita Martin, guest of PCL episode number 43. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.